welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode on machine learning has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Lynette Ferguson, head of hedge fund and alternative credit solutions investment specialists, and Richard Birch, head of hedge fund and alternative credit relative value strategies, both with J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Let's dive right in. You know, it feels like you can't really open a newspaper, go online without seeing some sort of article about artificial intelligence and how it's changed the way that we do things, you know, whether it's TV and movie recommendations, customer service chatbots, you know, I feel like sometimes the machines know what I want for dinner before I know what I want for dinner. The list goes on. And we hear about artificial intelligence and advancements there as it pertains to places like healthcare and biotech. But machine learning is increasingly being used to implement successful financial market strategies as well. Lynette, maybe we'll start with you. At the highest level, can we start by defining what machine learning is? And can you give us a little bit of an introduction into how it's being applied to the quant investing space at the current juncture? Sure. In terms of investing in financial markets, because you said you can use machine learning for a lot of different purposes, and that's even within financial markets as well. In terms of trading them, so machine learning, think of it as people using statistics, computer science, as a way to have systems models that are predicting how financial markets are going to behave. So they're using pattern recognition to take historic data and use that to try and predict forward markets. Now, you could think that we've had A lot of that historically, people might be familiar with things like CTAs, so trend followers, or there's other models that have been famous in financial markets. The difference with machine learning is that they are adaptive. So they're constantly taking new data and using that to change their prediction of what's going to happen. The other point I would just make is financial markets have probably been maybe slightly behind in terms of what we've seen in other areas for machine learning, because it's much harder to do that than, say, it might be to look at x-rays or work out which films you want to watch. And so with financial markets, there's a lot of more noise around the signal. So it's much harder to use machine learning in that respect. Interesting. Maybe we'll take a step back. You, know, you mentioned quant investing and CTAs and some of these strategies that have been around for a while that essentially look at trends, try to follow the trends and play the momentum game to an extent. Rich, I want to bring you into the conversation. I think it would be good in order to make sure everybody's fully informed to talk a little bit about the evolution of quant investing over the past you know, decade, decade and a half, to give our listeners just a little bit of background in where things started and how we got to the current juncture where we are today. Sure. Let me start by framing the conversation a little. You know, People think of quant investing as a black box, that it's this thing they can't really understand. But when you go back to the earliest implementations of using computers to trade, the idea was really take what we do every day, take the decisions that people make when they decide they want to buy something or sell something, and try to find a way to automate them. And so you know, you come up with rules, right? And you want to find a way to take those rules and implement them systematically. So a typical rule that someone might follow is buy low, sell high, right? I want to buy something that I think is cheap, and I want to sell it when I think it's expensive. And so then as a quantitative programmer sitting down, they're saying, well, how can I decide what looks cheap and what looks expensive? 20 years ago or more, the earliest implementations of quantitative investing were designed to capture those things that we understand. Like you mentioned trend. This idea that if a stock is going up, maybe I think it's going to keep going up. So I want to find a way to decide that it's in a trend and I want to buy and go along with the momentum. 
or if a stock that I think is good has sold off for some reason, maybe I believe it's a value play and I want to find a way to decide to buy that stock. So the earliest implementations were capturing these effects that everyone understood as value or momentum or certain factors, growth, certain sectors that might be interesting. Today, when we look at that earliest implementation, that version today is what we call risk premia, right? These are very well-known factors that you can invest in for very low fee. In around 2007, in August of 2007, there was a massive correction in quantitative investing. Because what happened was it turned out that no matter how people were pursuing those things that everyone thought they understood, and people thought they were pursuing it in very complex and intricate ways, at the end of the day, they were ending up in all the same names. And there was a deleveraging that happened across the industry. And because these quantitative funds tend to be levered, they experienced a big drawdown during that deleveraging. They all ended up in the exact same names. In response to that, or at least partly in response to that, quantitative managers decided that they needed to be more concerned that these forecasts, that these potential drivers of movement that they had identified were getting crowded, they needed to find more unique or orthogonal, as the word we use, meaning uncorrelated sources of return, potential drivers of stock price. So in addition to, or instead of value and momentum and things like that, they looked for things that might drive stock price that would be more unique, that could be statistically demonstrated to drive returns. We refer to those, those hypotheses of things that might drive stock prices, as priors. An example of a typical prior that was used back in the day that, honestly, every manager today uses as their example of a prior is analyst recommendations, right? So that if an analyst publishes a report that says they think stock XYZ is going to be 20% higher by the end of the year, you come up with a rule that says whenever an analyst makes a recommendation, you trade on that recommendation. And you can backtest that and see how it would have worked in the past. And if it looks like it would have worked in the past, you write an algorithm, which is a program that will kind of monitor that data and be able to trade going forward. And you come up with a collection of those that are all different, all unique, and they are effectively replacing the ideas of value and momentum. But those also can get crowded over time. And at the same time as managers were rotating into these orthogonal set of forecasts, this idea of artificial intelligence, machine learning, was in the background getting a lot of momentum. But because of the cost of computing power and actually the relative lack of computing power versus what we have today, it took a long time before you were able to apply those techniques to financial markets. In kind of the late 2000s, you finally saw the first dedicated hedge funds being set up to focus on capturing these purely statistical drivers of return, where there wasn't necessarily a prior or a hypothesis of what might drive return. It was based purely on statistical analysis of the data. And you know the reason it came to the fore at that point was computers were more powerful, computing power was less expensive, was more available to everybody, not just the largest brand name kind of quantitative hedge funds. And the amount of data that had been captured to that point finally made it possible to actually create a learning set, right? To have the ability to write an algorithm to learn on enough data that it could forecast prices going forward. And that really brings us from 2008, 2009 to today, you've seen machine learning really become much more prevalent in quantitative investing. It's much more adaptive than this old approach, right, the kind of prior-based approach. In this case, it can continually relearn based on how the patterns in the past have changed, how the current state may look like different things that have happened in the past. And the systems automatically adapt to the state of the world, giving the data they're learning from in the past. It's really interesting. And, you know, when we think about capital markets and equity markets in particular, obviously these are forward-looking mechanisms. And so it sounds to me like while 
probably half, maybe a little bit more of the history of quant investing has been based on looking backwards. What we're seeing a little bit more today is a forward look and trying to be more adaptive to what's going on, given the growth in the data set, given the growth in computing power. And that's something that we actually illustrate on a slide from our guide to alternatives, that there's just more data out there. Computers can do much more than they once did. And as a result, the strategies that managers are able to implement have really evolved quite nicely over the course of this expansion. Maybe I'll push you a little bit on this because I think what it sounds like to me is the lines between traditional quant managers and machine learning managers are beginning to blur. Can you talk a little bit about where machine learning is being applied in terms of strategies throughout the investment process? And then maybe as a follow-up to that, what it means for alpha generation. We're in this world of low-cost index funds, right? For the past 10 years, everybody has embraced beta with open arms. Alpha has been increasingly challenging to come by. And so what do you think these developments mean for alpha generation going forward? You alluded to some of the alpha historically kind of getting eaten away. Do you think that'll happen again? And where are we at the current juncture? So I think it's important, again, to distinguish between quantitative hedge funds and kind of the rest of the investment universe. In quantitative hedge funds, these are the people that are generally at the forefront of technology and understanding the best techniques to be able to forecast markets. They're applying machine learning. You know, it depends on which manager you're talking about at which stage. But you can really apply the technique through every aspect of the process, from actually looking at the data you have and understanding how valuable is the data and how should you process the data, straight through to looking for ways to forecast the future based on that data, forecast future prices the right way to construct a portfolio at any given time. The optimal portfolio construction may change based on the overall backdrop. Are we in a high-rate environment, a low-rate environment? Is it a volatile market or a non-volatile market? Are there certain factor risks you're willing to be exposed to or not be exposed to? So that's the portfolio construction piece. And then there's how you actually build that portfolio. So how do you trade in the market? How do you understand your impact in terms of Every time you do a trade, you're moving a market and understanding the right time to trade, when to be aggressive, when to be passive. Machine learning can be applied through every aspect of that process. I think what we're seeing is the newer funds that are starting up, that are being started up by machine learning experts, integrate machine learning through every aspect of the process. Whereas if you look at some of the managers who have been around for 20 or 30 years, they're best of breed in kind of being that traditional quant, and you certainly would never bet against them. But they're a bit slower to adapt to this big kind of monumental change toward machine learning, and they're actually starting to apply it more on the execution side. Things that they view like you don't need to understand necessarily what's driving the return. That's the challenge with machine learning is that you don't always understand the result, right? You know that the machine's telling you statistically this is the right bet to make, but you may not understand why it's statistically telling you to do that. When you look at the broader investment landscape, it's our view that Given the amount of data in the world today and the fact that all this data could be analyzed to help you come to good investment conclusions, if you are a traditional fundamental discretionary investor, whether in equities or futures or any asset class, you need to be able to compete with not just the machines, but with firms that have big data science teams. Right? You need to be able to analyze data quickly and use that to help you come up with better investment decisions. And I think that the bar is being raised. You know, the Alpha will be consumed first by the people who have the ability to make the decisions the fastest. I think that quantitative managers, quantitative investors, will probably eat up a lot of the shorter-term alpha, and you'll probably see the more traditional strategies get pushed out to longer-horizon investments. Maybe one thing I can also comment back to that is that 
Rich mentioned before that one of the risks that had been with earlier stage quant investing was crowding. That's when we've seen big changes start to happen. And with machine learning, it's the same. You've got a risk that there could be that people end up maybe kind of looking at the same patterns, finding the same relationships, and that being a problem and people then ending up in the same positions. I think it's also important to note that makes this less of a risk in machine learning is that there's a lot of different types of machine learning. So we've talked so far as if machine learning is just this one homogenous group. Actually, there's lots of different techniques. If you even think of the types of things that we hear in the real world, sort of outside financial markets, that machine learning gets used for. So looking at x-rays and the doctor's surgery, looking at technology that might be trying to work out what you're saying and translating it into text on your phone. Those all using different types of techniques of machine learning. It's the same thing in financial markets. And so you'd expect, therefore, that the risk of crowding is just pushed out that bit further because there's so many different ways that machine learning can be used, in addition to, as Rich was saying, lots of different parts of the process that it can be used for in terms of the actual funds themselves and generating Returns. I think we should stay on that because you've alluded to the fact that there are lots of different types of machine learning. It can be used across the process. There are alpha implications in both the short run and the long run. You know, when we look at the world today, manager due diligence, fund due diligence has become a business in and of itself. And, you know, some of the pushback that we get from clients is, okay, you're telling me the machines are doing all this stuff and you're adaptive and you're forward-looking and you're going to generate alpha based on all of these trends that you've discerned from the data. Some people say, well, to me, that sounds like a black box. And I find it challenging to really get comfortable with an approach that if somebody's not an engineer, they may find it challenging to truly understand what's happening, you know, with respect to the investment strategies at these funds. So, Lynette, can you talk a little bit about how to evaluate these strategies and how you've helped some clients get comfortable with these types of strategies within the context of their broader portfolio? Yeah, that's a really good question. We get it from a lot of clients. And so with these sorts of funds, I think it's important that you think of, in a way, there's two sorts of transparency that you're expecting from managers that help you in terms of evaluating what's going on. The first part of transparency is the basic transparency that most people are used to, which is much better, let's say, in hedge funds, first of all, than it was, say, 10 years ago. It's much easier to get a lot more transparency now, which is great. So you're thinking here of basic exposure data, so maybe attribution, like large positions. There's the sort of basic data that really, if you're not going to get from any manager then you shouldn't really be investing in the fund. So there's that basic sort of data. The problem is, as we talked about machine learning, one of the key attributes of this as a strategy is that it's adaptive. So what somebody might be looking at in terms of markets today, what might be driving their returns today, is not what you'd expect to be driving their returns in six months from now. And so that over-reliance in terms of trying to work out what's in the portfolio today is not really your best indicator of whether that manager is doing as you expect them to do. So the other side of the transparency, which actually we think is much more important, is actually the process. So understanding where it's being applied, understanding how the manager is thinking about developing their models, understanding what they do internally if things go wrong. We sort of, our group has sort of worked out some like 150 different aspects of the quant system they might look at that we're sort of assessing on an ongoing basis. And it's insight into that process that we find is a much better predictor whether managers are going to do well going forward or not. But it's that probably side people focus on less from an investor perspective. And it's interesting, you know, we've been talking about how traditional quant investing was somewhat backward-looking. Now it's becoming more forward-looking. It Mm -hmm. sounds like as people evaluate these types of strategies, they should be forward-looking as well, not dwell on necessarily what's in the portfolio today, but think about the underlying process just like they would with a traditional fundamental manager. I mean, it's really no different. Am I right in saying that? 
Yes, I think that's true. I think the other thing as well that you can do is in terms of assessment of the returns as well themselves. Like, is this manager doing what you expected them to do? There would maybe be an expected return profile, like you know, the extent of losses that you might expect to see. The time horizon of the fund will kind of play into that. And so are they behaving the way you expect them to? Are there things like we talked about, factors like value momentum? The managers used to exploit as quite common factors. You might see those sometimes coming up in machine learning strategies, but often you'd expect them to be more episodic and so not persistent. That's not what they're always doing. And so is this manager doing what they said they were going to do? If you analyse their returns, does something come through like an exposure to momentum that actually they told you that they weren't expecting to see in their system? So that constant also checking what they're saying versus their returns has a big impact as well. I think that's a good point. I mean, it sounds like a lot of these strategies are flexible to an extent. And so you need to kind of monitor them on an ongoing basis to make sure that they're still aligned with what you think they're going to do in the context of your broader portfolio. We've talked a little bit about what machine learning is. We've talked a little bit about how quant investing has evolved and how machine learning is really at the forefront of quant investing at the current juncture. We've talked about where it gets applied and how to think about these strategies within a context of portfolios. One of the things that has jumped out to us is that There are clearly risks associated with this. There are risks associated with any investment. Otherwise, you wouldn't get any return. The alpha that these strategies tend to generate is oftentimes significant and uncorrelated. And in a world where interest rates are very low, the stock market is bouncing around far more than it has historically, more and more client conversations that I'm having really come back to, okay, what can you give me that's going to provide some alpha but isn't going to move around with the rest of my portfolio? But Machine learning does not guarantee success. It's been good at this, but it's not necessarily a silver bullet. And thinking about the hedge fund universe more broadly, there's an element of survivorship. And sometimes new funds are here today and gone tomorrow. So I want to kind of wrap up the conversation, bring you both back in. You know, there's no guarantee of success. And you need to think about risk management and manager selection. Can you each talk a little bit more about how you think about manager selection and kind of how our clients should go about doing this to make informed choices as they allocate to this space going forward? Sure. So I'll make a couple of points before I pass over to Rich. One I'd say is that this is a little bit like ESG actually these days. It gets used as almost like a marketing term. And so though you might see a lot of funds being launched these days with saying they're doing machine learning, It doesn't necessarily mean that that's fully what they're doing or that they're any good. So we mentioned before that this is actually quite a hard area to apply machine learning to. And we find that even when you've got people who've got a lot of experience in terms of building machine learning algorithms, doesn't mean to say they'll be any good at applying them to financial markets. Often some knowledge of how financial markets work or the difficulties that you might have, be it from working with execution broker algorithms, the stress periods that you might have, Having knowledge of that as well actually tends to find works out for better managers. So that's one point. I think the other is in terms of how you hold these managers. We'd expect, you know, in any one year, some of these managers are not going to have a good year. As you say, we think it's important to have a portfolio of these managers together. So you should be holding more than one of these managers at any one time, not just relying on a single manager to be able to give you what you need from this strategy. Awesome. And Rich, anything you would add to that? Yeah, just a couple of additional points. So first, very similar to like machine learning itself. You know, you need a good data set to help you know when you're making good decisions. And I think one advantage we have is that we've been looking at machine learning funds since 2009, really. And so if you meet a fund today and you're trying to assess against those 150 metrics that Lynette mentioned, it's very helpful if you actually have the full history and you can actually compare every aspect of a manager's process to who you think are the best people in the space. So there is this kind of uh, cumulative effect of getting to know every manager, every player in the space and understanding what it takes to be successful. 
because even the managers we meet who we think are you know, top tier in terms of machine learning, we'll always highlight the aspects of their process we think that still need work, like where they need to develop. And that's where we focus the due diligence on an ongoing basis. The other thing I would add to, in terms of just furthering Lynette's comments on diversification, having a portfolio of more than one manager, so you get kind of this effect where if they're uncorrelated to each other, if some are making money one year and others a different year, you get a much more stable return. You know, one benefit of systematic investing is that we have good insight into the process, and you're able to tell from a qualitative standpoint who are doing things differently. So you can look at just the returns and say, these are uncorrelated, this is a good group of managers. But you're able to go one step deeper when you have that kind of depth of due diligence. You can say, you know, these people are applying different types of models or models over a different horizon or applying them to different markets. And when you put them together, you can end up with a very complementary set of managers that give you a very stable return and an overall higher sharp profile. So you can get to a very stable, uncorrelated return. Maybe one thing also that we just haven't mentioned, but often we hear about quite a lot in conjunction with machine learning is big data. And so maybe just one last point to make with respect to that. We've heard of big data has been one of these big things, and that's why machine learning is coming to the forefront now. I'd actually say in terms of financial markets, that's probably not as much the case as people think. And one of the reasons for that is because actually a lot of these data sets don't go back very far in history. And so from that perspective, there's huge potential for this to change and develop going forward as those data sets get longer time series and go back further and therefore become more useful in terms of funds being able to trade these markets. You could actually see quite a powerful impact that's still potentially still to come on the markets. I think that's a great point. And as somebody who spends the majority of their time working with data, I am very aware of the limitations that (laughs) you have uh, that you have alluded to. But it sounds like in general, this is a part of the investment universe where there's a massive amount of depth. And given that depth with respect to process and outcomes and correlation, diversification is really of the utmost importance. But I think the most important thing that I took away from our conversation today would be probably the term adaptability. Right? These are managers that are adapting to an evolving landscape. And as a result, investors who leverage their investment strategies are going to need to adapt to the set of options that are available as we continue to move forward through the end of this bull market and into subsequent ones. So with that said, thank you both for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on September 27th, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, 
users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the MEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, Co-Reg Number 197-601-586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Singapore Private Limited, Co-Reg Number 201-120-355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investments Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients, only as defined in Section 761A, and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514383280, AFSL 376919, in Brazil by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019 J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, all rights reserved.